I would never want to do Richard Roxburgh's performance because I just think that would be really inauthentic. Because often you feel like you can't say no when you really need to. There is masculinity within femininity. There is strength within vulnerability. Stop pushing it away. IMHO invites you to be the judge. In this podcast, we turn the microphone back on the leaders of the arts and entertainment industry and ask them to tell us what they really think. These are their unflinching and unfiltered answers and their honest opinions. Today's guest is one of Australia's most in-demand song and dance men, currently starring as the villainous Duke in the Australian premiere of Moulin Rouge, the musical. He's modern theatre's greatest showman, having played some of the genre's biggest roles, including Judd Fry in Oklahoma and Fred Casely in Chicago. But there's one character he's keen to share more of. Visiting Brisbane direct from the bright lights of the Moulin Rouge, it's Andy Cook. Bonjour. <laughs> Welcome, Andy. Welcome back to Brisbane. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be in sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last time we caught up, casting for the Australian premiere of Moulin Rouge mm. had just been announced, mm-hmm. and now your second season in Sydney is mm. in full swing. How's it all going? It is going at a rapid pace, let me assure you. No, it's fantastic. I think when we first started sharing the show in Melbourne, Melbourne had been locked inside for so long and we hadn't had a big commercial show like this come out yet. So it was just, I would say, therapeutic for all of us, therapeutic for the cast, for the audience. It was extremely emotional. So I feel like we've ridden that high from then and have not stopped. And now having the same experience in Sydney, it's just unbelievably joyous. I feel very, very lucky, truly. Yeah. There's a line in the show that says the show must go on. <laughs> yeah. But of course, it, it almost didn't in, <sighs> in some respects. Take yeah. us back a year ago to the, the lead-in to Moulin Rouge opening in Melbourne when the Delta variant was running rampant. What was that like for you and the company? Literally, we were in, in the room trying to think back. We are at ABC Studios rehearsing. I think we had just done a run of the show and then they called a meeting and they were like, look who could get on a plane right now and go home because we are having to shut down everything. So a bunch of us put our hands up and they were like, right, we'll release you once we tell you what's going on. They told us that there was a complete lockdown happening again in Sydney and we had to get to Melbourne to do a two-week quarantine to then see if we could maybe start rehearsing again. So we managed to do that, did a two-week quarantine, got back in the room in Melbourne because I think COVID hadn't quite re-hit there like it had Sydney at that time. So we got back into the theatre and started teching to then again have the rug pulled from us basically right before we were supposed to be previewing. And we're back in our houses again for another, I think it was a couple of months. And then, yeah, all the USA team had to go home. So it was incredibly deflating. After everything we'd been through, I just feel like I constantly spent time inside for two years and was an artist sometimes. Was there a moment throughout that process where there were genuine fears that it wouldn't get up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this company, I I can't even tell you how much I respect this, like actually global creatures, but also the company, the cast and crew. Although there were fears, there was just unbelievable optimism. I could feel the ferocity in the producers of like, we are going to get this thing on. So even though there were times and fears of like, yeah, we might not, I knew in my heart of hearts that we had to put this on. It was always going to happen and it was always going to be us. So yeah, there were fears and 
mainly disappointments, but I did know that it was going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned that this show in particular, I think for Moulin Rouge, the mm. musical, yeah. a film that is so dear to Australians, mm. obviously the Australian premiere coincided with the 20th anniversary release of the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the second ever production or city to mm. receive this production mm-hmm. globally, which is obviously huge. With that sort of show and, and an iconic role such as the Duke mm-hmm. that Richard Roxburgh immortalised mm-hmm. yeah, on film, yeah, yeah. how do you make that role your own? What's your process mm-hmm. for taking a role like that mm-hmm. and, and injecting Andy Cook into it? Yeah, well, I guess firstly, to touch on The Rocks, I absolutely love his version of The Duke and I just love The Rocks in general and the film is is so iconic. But I guess with something like that, you know, you never want to copy and you never want to recreate something. I would never want to do Richard Roxburgh's performance because I just think that would be really inauthentic to me and the show. Firstly, the Duke in our show is a very different read. He's just got a very different energy, which I think actually informs Satine's narrative in a more updated way. It's more of a choice for her. It makes it more exciting for her. In a lot of ways, people are like, yeah, go with that guy. Like, he will give you a really great life. So it actually makes the love triangle more heated. And I just feel like the stakes are a bit higher. But for me, I guess, as an artist, what I've learned along the way is trust yourself trust that you are enough as a human being. And and that's what I'm trying to do in, in every role I do, including the Duke, is humanize this person. And the best way to do that is just come from your own angle. How would I approach this situation? So yeah, just completely bring yourself and your authenticity to every single moment and humanize every single moment as you would, as Andy Cook would. And then layer from there with accent, with period, where are we? What era are we in? How does that inform this situation? And how will that change the stakes of that scene? But I always come from me first because I think I'm a very strange, weird, kooky person. (laughs) And I think that's what gets me where I am today. So yeah, just trusting that. And take us back to the casting process. You know, when you initially received the brief for the show. Yeah. Was it the Duke specifically that you were called to audition for or was it were, were all roles on the table at the time of auditioning? I mean, all roles were on the table, but I always knew I was going to go for the Duke. I'd had a couple of conversations with people who were like, you should have a listen to this. And I, I sort of listened to the to the recording and I was like, oh, okay, this, you know, vocally is very much my vibe and I feel very connected to Moulin Rouge. I fucking <laughs> love the film so much and just... What the film did for musicals, and I have, here you go, name drop, I have worked with Baz Luhrmann before. So I think meeting him and having that connection, I felt like I needed to be part of this Red Curtain trilogy sort of moment. But I say Baz because what I love about him is he reignited a fire in film for musicals and musical theatre. He made it approachable to everyone again by using a catalogue of music that everyone loved and everyone knew and, and just did something no one else had done before, sort of like reinvented a jukebox musical in the best way you possibly can. And then from there, then like Chicago came out and Hairspray and real getting hits back on the big screen again. Mm. So I felt like I really wanted to be a part of it because of what it stood for, the film. But yeah, I think I was drawn to the Duke because I often like the villains. Obviously, we just <laughs> heard like Judd Fries and Fred Casey and in my 
understudy life, which I've understudied for, you know, 10 years now, you're Jerry Goffins and beautiful, and I'm often drawn to flawed characters. They're more interesting. It's harder. The journey isn't as straightforward as the hero, and, and I think there's something really exciting about that and really breaking down the psychology behind why is someone like that? Why are they so angry? Where does that come from? And add as much vulnerability into that so people actually feel something. Mm. I think that's really exciting. And do you think it is as black and white as heroes and villains? Absolutely not. We're all villains. Embrace it more. The more... (laughs) I was talking to someone the other day about like rights and wrongs, I guess, you know, heroes and villains. I was like, the more that we all just accept that no one knows absolutely anything. Like we know nothing. Just accept that. And like, it would just be much easier for us. It's the same with heroes and villains. This We all live in the gray area, right? You know, the black and white, I think, is just everything that society has put there for us. And we actually really exist in the gray and we all do villain things every damn day. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in musical theatre especially, mm, the mm. villains are, the villains in inverted commas oh, are yeah. more often than not the favourite characters, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And they get the best songs and they're the cheekiest. And, uh, you know, like when you are playing the villain, there are certain narratives you need to be aware of. Like you are there to serve this purpose in the story. So obviously you need to hit certain marks so that, you know, we all get on the same journey we need to be on. But yeah, I just, I'm always drawn to the villain. I always want to know more about them. They're often underwritten too, Mm. you know, because it's so much focused on hero and you know like the two leads and you're like oh no let's come back to these people like (laughs) they've got some real shit to unpack like let's get a psych in here and go like and and so i guess for you that gives you the opportunity as actor to Mm. fill in some of those blanks yourself absolutely yeah and that's what i love doing that's your work as an actor isn't it is doing all the work off the page so when you walk on and you have your four to ten lines they're absolutely loaded with a a lifetime of trauma (laughs) (laughs) Um, speaking of trauma oh lord you know you mentioned that you know you've enjoyed this incredible career now for a decade Mm. that has been a life on the road Mm -hmm. and and one of i I guess the flip side of a really fabulous career in musical theater is that it comes at significant personal sacrifice. It's time away from family and friends. It's Mm. missed milestones. I remember when we last caught up, you said even things like milestone birthdays or the amount of friends' weddings that you've missed as a result of the career, Mm. living out of a suitcase. One of the greatest things about coming home from a holiday is unpacking, but (laughs) you're not often afforded the opportunity to do Mm. that. How do you navigate that kind of personal sacrifice that comes with, you know, being at the top end of your career? It's tough. It's really tough. And balance is not something that is in the theatre community. Like I can only speak for really music theatre and I've had to learn a hard way. I did a lot of jobs back to back, which, you know, I see the privilege in that and I'm very lucky to have had those jobs. But yeah, it's an industry that there is a lot of burnout in. I find myself included in that and I've had a lot of friends burn out because often you feel like you can't say no when you really need to. And that's what I've learned. The downtime is really important. Sure, jump into these big, long-running gigs and, and save your money. That's really important so that you can sit down for a bit and be a human being because if you just jump from gig to gig, you've blinked and you've missed everything. Yeah, you have missed. I didn't really celebrate my 30th. You know, I didn't really... 
turn up to a lot of my friends' weddings or funerals and that stuff really will will burn you as you get older and you, you'll start to, to become resentful of the job and you never want that as an artist. You don't want to resent what you do because we're there to share for other people. We're there to make other people feel things. So if you're feeling resentful, then I don't think you could be an artist in that space, if that makes sense. Mm. I think it's quite phenomenal the last two years in particular has been so tumultuous for, yeah. for the world, but in particular for the artistic world. Mm. Yet during that time, you have been a part of major seasons in Sydney and Melbourne, as we've discussed, mm. in Brisbane, in Perth, mm. which is quite extraordinary to, to think about the yeah. navigating of that kind of travel. Mm. How? How was that possible? And, and what are your memories of that period? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll start with... Perth, Oklahoma, because that was the first thing I did after a year and a half or something of sitting in my living room drinking a lot of red wine and <laughs> a lot of Zooms. That could happen because at that point, WA was sort of untouched. It was this, it was his own little golden beacon of creativity that we all watched from Instagram, like, holy shit, like, how are you even doing this? And it was always going to go on there. That show was always going to happen there. And we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get there because of borders and all sorts of things. But anyway, one thing after the other, we were able to get across the border and do the show. Yeah, but we waited with our breath held for a year and a half to see if it was still going to happen. I remember getting to the airport at that point. I hadn't gone anywhere other than my living room and Coles for literally a year and a half. And I remember going to the airport, which was so quiet and just having severe anxiety about being outside of my house and being around other people and yeah flying into Perth where COVID really didn't exist I had to do a two-week quarantine which you know was actually good because <laughs> Richard Carroll who was just the most amazing man him and Victoria Falconer asked me to do a big grand piano solo in the middle of Lonely Room, which is one of Judd Fry's songs. So I was able to sit there with my keys and like drill the shit out of this song, which I really needed. Sam method. So that was good for the quarantine. But once I got out of that, I just remember the first thing I did, I was with Stephanie Kakamo, who's a good friend of ours, got in a cab and we were both quite overwhelmed and went straight to the beach. And it was like, there was a party on the beach and I, yeah, the sun sets over the sea in Perth and it was just, I hadn't been there for 10 years. I studied there and lived there for three years. And going back there was nostalgic and unbelievably overwhelming. I was, I felt like I was taking a huge breath of air that was so confronting because I was like, oh my God, I have purpose again. Like I get to do what I love again with people who are so exciting on a show that is just the gayest and most confronting <laughs> piece we will ever do in our lives and we get to create it and make it our own and you know, re-identify it and really fuck it you know it was, it was so exciting how did you reinvent the iconic role of judd in oklahoma for a contemporary audience well i mean what we did with oklahoma i guess to sum it up we put a queer lens on the entire show so Curly was played by an amazing artist, Emily Havea, which then obviously made the relationship between Curly and Laurie a queer one. But not only that, there was there was like a Vogue ball in Many a New Day with like, you know, RuPaul-esque like ballroom energy. It was amazing. But something like Judd, when I say queer lens, 
even the costume design, everything I wore was sort of inspired by Tom of Finland, which is huge gay culture icon sort of energy. So you got to take that into consideration. And as I did, this Jard was sort of the vision for him was very straight white male Trump voting. You know, Trump was very strong at the time we did this this show, so it felt that like that sort of energy. And as I went through the script, I was like, okay, problematic. This guy is problematic. This show has problematic moments. But what am I seeing here? Anger, a lot of anger. And he just constantly over and over says, I need a woman. I want a woman. I need a girl. I'm going to get a girl. And I'm like, you know what that sounds like? Me when I was 15, trying to tell myself that I am not gay. I'm not gay. I can't be gay. It doesn't fit in with my life. I don't want that for myself. So I instantly saw a correlation to myself there. So that was my in for Jada. I was like, oh my God, he's a closeted male. And that's why he's so confronted by Curly because she's outwardly queer and the relationship is queer. And then it holds a mirror to himself and it's everything that he truly wants for himself but can never have. And so you know, it, for me, it just validated why this guy is so angry. Because a lot of the times I've watched Oklahoma and gone, <laughs> why is this guy so angry? And why is he the unsung hero? Like, what the hell? No. So that was a really cool way to bring myself into the character because, yeah, I actually saw a version of myself. I've just had more therapy than him, I would say. <laughs> and I would say that yeah. that was a really perfect stepping stone then into your song. Oh, my God. Which, like, of course, the nature of the show is that, or the premise, rather, is that mm. we are recontextualizing Elton songs through the real stories of real people. Very much so, which, again, was another, like, queer journey for me to, like, re like not re-embrace myself, but embrace who I am in a big way and and having having Nay tell me the premise of it and, yeah, like... like Literally having my own story in that show was just like a natural progression for me to be like, yes, I'm doing this. Let's create something. But I think the biggest draw card is like it was verbatim theater. The minute Nay said that to me, I was like, holy shit, I need to be doing this gig because we were taking real people's experiences. And, and that's what we do as artists, right? We we make other people feel things. And that's what this felt like, a gift to the audience, a love letter to the audience. We were connecting through people's real experiences. So you had to take them with like such care and and really make sure they were truthful and authentic and funny and heartfelt and that we were accessing everything that that person had felt in that moment. Yes, yeah, so it was very much a natural progression of being myself over those two contracts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. I often talk about your song to people. And they're like, oh yeah, what was that like? And I said, probably the best thing I've ever done and the best thing I'll ever be a part of. And something I didn't realize that I really needed to do at that time. I have an excerpt here that we can share with listeners, which is quite a vulnerable moment for you where mm. you're you're sharing. I'll never forget the first time Naomi asked me to read it through in the room. Because, you know, yeah, you're always reading someone else's words in a show. And it was the first time I was reading my own. And, oh, yeah, I'll get upset talking about it now, but it's just, yeah, I couldn't get through it. I remember that first day I, I could not get through my own words because I found them so confronting yeah let's play a little yeah, bit of it yeah. and then uh you can reflect for us i was uh 
not like my brothers. You see, I loved dolls, dresses, makeup, and of course, wearing mum's heels. Yeah. <laughs> so naturally, for my fourth birthday party, I demanded it be fancy dress. And you know, it was your typical fanfare of uh, Ninja Turtles, Action Man, Batman, Spider Man, anything with man at the end of it. And of course, some uh, not so incredible Hulk. Yikes. <laughs> and there, in a sea of sameness, stood me as my idol, Ariel the Little Mermaid. <laughs> in a fishtail and a shell bra. <laughs> I was so unapologetic, so fierce. And you know what? No one cared. <laughs> but then uh, along comes high school, which for me personally was, um, how do I say, uh, an all-boys Catholic prison. I somehow managed to lose that little boy in the shell bra because it wasn't okay for me to be him anymore. Or in fact, it wasn't safe for me to be him. Was that scary for you to share and, and be that vulnerable with audiences? Terrifying, but in the end, beautiful. I remember the first... The first time I did it, it was like, I hadn't really thought about it too much leading up to it, like the songs leading up to it, because they're so joyful and ridiculous. Like I was drop splitting in the numbers before this, like, you know. Um, but yeah, I remember stepping onto stage and I had to listen to the intros from Marcus and Luke before I say mine. And my heart was just screaming to jump out of my mouth and... Yeah, I had to take a lot of deep breaths. And yeah, if you saw it every night, I'd lose it. That night in particular, I really lost it. And there was such an eclectic group out there that night. And I, I, I could barely get through the song. I got it out singing Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And at the end, like I'll never forget this, this. First of all, the silence of, you know, you've just shared something deeply personal. So I, I'll never forget the silence of actually seeing people really hear me, hear what I had to say and let that sit with them. And then people jumping to their feet. And there was this one guy, one gay identifying guy out there who just was, I could see it in his eyes. He had lived that same experience and he, he came and found me afterwards and he was like, oh my God, like, I don't think I've ever seen myself or heard my own story like that before. And yeah, it was unreal. And, you know, my, my dad and my stepmom came to see it. And my dad, he's, you know, he's the most beautiful man, but he often doesn't show his vulnerable side. And yeah, I saw him after the show and he was like, that deeply affected me because I felt very responsible. And it actually sparked a really beautiful conversation with me and my dad. And I was like, you know, it's it's actually not your fault and it's not my fault. It's no one's fault. It's the circumstance. And it's led me to who I am today. My dad was actually the one who gave me the choice to leave that school. He could see that I didn't fit there, but I just due to society and being too scared to be who I was, I didn't want to leave the school because I had friends there. Where are they now? <laughs> yeah, so it was in incredibly beautiful to share that and it yeah it led to some beautiful cathartic moments with my dad and with audience members who just were able to see themselves and for me to also accept myself as an artist fully because I think a lot of times in musical theater especially commercial musical theater 
you get comments like this. Because often the way I look is just, I don't know, people just think I'm like one certain way, this like big like manly man to play like the like leading man or like the duke, the villain, you know what I mean? And, and people, as the process goes on, they're like, oh, just this be, just be a bit careful because, you know, it's coming across a bit like, you know, and I'm like, no, go on, say it. Gay. It's coming from a bit gay, isn't it? So I think dealing with that sort of energy for 10 years and finally being able to express it on stage was monumental for me as an artist and something I will be unapologetic about as I move forward as an artist. So it was a huge stepping stone for me, which I take into Moulin Rouge, you know, which I very much am like, no, 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 no. There is masculinity within femininity there is strengths within vulnerability stop pushing it away and let's live in the gray mm. like yeah very much and let's chat dream roles you know you, you've, you've played some of the greats I have, um, yes. is there a list or is there a role even that you are <sighs> yet to tackle but is absolutely on the bucket list mm, for you probably many honestly i'd like to play myself in a show i mean like a a queer man uh, it would be amazing to do it in a commercial sense, to have like a real gay love story at the front, like not tokenized, not like giggled at, like a real fucking relationship on stage between two men or, or, or be a part of something like that. Now this, we like to finish our interviews with a segment that we affectionately call Five Honest Answers. Mm. This is our quick fire round. There's okay. no time to think and there are no answers that are off limits. Kicking us off with number one, Andy, if you had the power to ban one production from ever being produced again, what would it be? Moonshadow. <laughs> I feel like I knew the answer <laughs> to that one. What is your pet audience peeve oh god how long do you have <laughs> um do you know what mobile phones especially in quiet intimate moments mm. like there are so many times even in moulin rouge like you're literally having such a vulnerable moment and you get taken out like like, and, oh my god there are like seventy-five thousand announcements like have you ever been inside a theater in your life turn off your phone, not flight mode, not silent, off. You won't miss anything. Turn it off. <laughs> and if you could steal someone else's career as your own, Ooh. whose would it be? Oh, my God. That is such a tough one. Oh, my God. Who would I steal? I literally said, oh, you know, maybe someone like Sam Claflin. He's like a screen actor and I just love every role he's played. He's always so interesting and different and transformative every time. Him or Alexander Skarsgård. Now, you are undeniably one of Australia's top triple threats. Uh, but if you could only choose one, singing, dancing, acting, to ever do again, what would it be? Acting. And finally, Andy Cook. How do you feel about cancel culture? Ooh, unnecessary in a lot of ways. Complicated, but necessary. Fabulous. Mm. I have been chatting with the wonderful Andy Cook, star of Your Song, which returns to Brisbane in September. To play us out, we've got one of the iconic songs from the show. This is the cast of Your Song with I'm Still Standing. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.
taste of love in a simple way And if you need to know why I'm still standing You just fade away I'm still dead Better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Just a circus, you'd be a clown by now Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did Looking like a true survivor Feeling like a little kid And I'm still standing after all this time Picking up the pieces of my life without you on my mind listening to IMHO. Make sure you subscribe and in the spirit of the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to great podcasts. For honest opinions, ratings you can relate to and the latest arts and entertainment news, check out inmyhonestopinion.com.au.